it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Do you have a long-term mindset searching for safe compounders? So am I. And I'm investing my entire life savings with the picks from valuespotlight.com. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we're going to do a bird's eye view of learning how to start analyzing an industry. So Andrew and I thought we would take a moment to kind of go over how we would start looking at something that maybe you want to dive into, whether it's semiconductors, payments, maybe the cloud, maybe trains, you know, who knows, anything like that. But whenever you start to learn a new industry, there's, there's a lot of information you need to learn. And this might be a good framework to help you kind of get started with that. So, Andrew, would you like to go ahead and kind of start our conversation? Obviously, there's a million choices you could go, a million paths to go when you're looking at an industry. Do you have one that you use in particular? I guess the easiest way for me to kind of describe it is when I look at starting to try to get my head around a new potential industry. For example, when I was looking at payments, one of the things that I started to do was kind of use this framework of just gathering as much information as I could, whether that was books, whether that was podcasts, whether those articles, whether those were descriptions of different terminology from the internet, just anything, any kind of information I could get, I just tried to gather as much. And so I just generally try to use, you know, the squirrel method, you know, just go out and find as much about a particular subject as I could. And before I really started to wade in, what about you? I think it'll be interesting because we take different philosophical approaches to it. Mm -hmm. I try to really take like a bird's eye approach, I guess, for lack of a better word, but Mm -hmm. it's more about, I guess, like identifying what would be the number one, two, three, four biggest factors of that industry and then trying to not get too stuck in the minutiae for me. But I think I'm more of a generalist in that way. Right. So it's like if I'm trying to paint a picture, it's more on a financials basis than anything else. Mm-hmm. I notice that that doesn't seem to be the way most people operate. I don't think there's any hard and fast rule about how people can go about learning about a new industry. 
you know, if you don't know anything about the train industry and you want to start learning about it, I don't think there's any you know definitive, this is the way you do it. I think a lot of it just comes down to, I think, how you're built and how you want to go about learning something new. I kind of liken it to learning a new language or just learning a new skill. And for me, it's always been about, I guess, diving into the deep end and kind of trying to absorb as much of the language as I can to familiarize myself. The way you do it is probably smarter and certainly probably, I think, a lot quicker, but not in a bad way. But I think it's probably easier to assimilate the important things as opposed to just really diving into the deep end. Like when I started to learn the wine industry, when I was in the restaurant business, I literally go off the deep end and just started drinking a lot, of course, but but just we're trying to learn the terminology and you know picking up some of the hardest books and some of the most in-depth magazines and trying to learn about this particular industry from the inside out as opposed to the outside in, I guess. Yeah, yeah for sure. I guess from a financial standpoint, when I talk about trying to look at the number one, two, three, four biggest factors, it's, I don't know if this is like obvious, but it's for me as simple as like looking at what's the sales for different companies and comparing that. And then that helps to paint the first foundation of the painting of what's this industry like. So if I'm looking at shoes, for example, I wanted to look at all the obvious ones like foot lockers in the news all the time. Mm-hmm. Dillard's is another yeah. one. So you start to put all of those together. I think when a lot of people think of Foot Locker and the shoe industry, they, they focus on that mm-hmm. and then kind of build off that. So I think when you look at the numbers, you get an advantage in picking up things that aren't always obvious and like Foot Locker and shoes. No, um, but that's something that you can pick up by trying to paint the, the biggest picture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are you trying to, when you do that, are you trying to get a, an idea of the size of the market or the potential for the market by looking at the, like the revenue, for example, of the shoe industry? Would that help give you an idea of maybe how much each company or different companies could potentially grow in the industry? Yeah. That's definitely one way to think about it. I guess I would want to know. So what's like an industry that everybody's very familiar with? We could take like, I mean, the iPhone's probably one of the simplest, mm-hmm. right? You would take right. the Apple and, and you compare it to what Samsung and Google's Android. Right. Maybe not as obvious because those numbers, like soda maybe could be even the more, like you can take Pepsi versus Coca-Cola versus Dr. Pepper. Right. It's very, very straightforward. And you yep. can simply compare those two. But I think it's like one of those when we... And I don't know if this is even obvious to most people, but I guess for stock market people, I think it is a little more obvious that those two are companies that are more matured. Maybe they have long histories. They're not going to grow crazy fast. And we kind of know that Pepsi and Coca-Cola are pretty similar in size. Right. And they're actually very similar where the, like, not one of them is not like this fast newcomer. There's no like Uber of soda pop that we're familiar with. Right. So trying to do that with a brand new industry, looking at those numbers can sometimes tell you, okay, here's some of the bigger ones. Are they fast growers or slow growers? And then you can compare, okay, maybe this industry is more like 
Pepsi and Coca-Cola that's more matured and there's only a few big players. Or maybe this is like the cloud industry where there's 10, 15 companies all around the same small size, all growing crazy fast. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from Coke and Pepsi. So it doesn't give you all the answers, but kind of helps me to understand what are some of the dynamics in this industry. Mm -hmm. And I think something that can help a lot is if you start to see somebody taking a lot of market share. So I guess a good good example would be Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So you see kind of the hotels, all their revenues, and then you compare it to Airbnb and Airbnb is growing like a weed and all these other ones are growing more like Coca-Cola or Pepsi. Right. That's another obvious one to people like, yeah, Airbnb is taking a lot of market share, but that's what you can visualize when you look at the numbers and, and start to see those things. Yeah. I think that's a great insight. The thing that I noticed kind of using that, I did my usual, you know, try to learn how different things work before I started looking into numbers. But one of the things that I discovered when I was looking into solar panels, like the the solar panel industry was that all the companies were growing really fast but then if you started digging into the metrics or just looking deeper into the income statements, you could also see that the vast majority of them were not profitable. For me, that was actually something I was like, eh, okay, maybe this isn't the time to look at this industry for me because the companies aren't making money. I don't see, in some cases, some of them were grossly negative in their profits and didn't look like they were trending in the right direction either. So it made me think, okay, well, maybe this isn't as much ado about nothing. Like there's a lot of smoke here, but there's not much fire. And so it helped me actually kind of stop my research on that because I didn't think there would be anything there for me to that I'd want to buy just because of kind of the analysis of all the specific companies. It just didn't seem like it was anything that would be a good investment now potentially somewhere down the road, possibly. But you know, as of right now, it didn't look like the economics for the industry were all that great. That's a really good insight. And it's good that you were willing to get over the fact that you had invested some time in, in the industry, mm-hmm. but understanding that, hey, this isn't what I'm looking for, so I'm just going to move on. That mm-hmm. feels like a waste of time, but that's kind of required if you're going to have some good insights because having good insights means saying no to things. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. 
In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I guess beyond looking at kind of the overview of the numbers, if you want to start, I guess, looking at some of the minutiae, then how do you go about trying to, I guess, kind of parse what you think is important and what you don't think is important. Yeah, I guess once you kind of have the big picture of the industry and then you kind of know, okay, here's a company that's doing really, really well. And then maybe here's a company who's either the leader or they're the best. And then maybe there's a number two, whatever that looks like, you you start to identify the key players in that industry. And then you, I feel like that's the time to dive into those particular businesses. And then that's where reading the annual report can give you a lot of information about if we're talking about shoes again, because I started with that, mm-hmm. how does this company make money and then how do they differentiate themselves from a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. So well, we target this particular type of customer or we sell this particular type of shoe. You get into the, the real nitty gritty of that part mm-hmm. and then you can zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out and see, is this strategy that the company is employing, is it working for them or is it not? Because without the context, I could read about five different shoe companies and they all sound like they're doing great. They all all say, yeah, this part of our business is really, really smart. We're one of the leading shoe producers in the world. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You get a lot from kind of checking the facts, fact-checking these companies And to me, like, I have to feel like I understand the logic of a company's, but also see the evidence of the moat in order to to say, yeah, this is a better company than this company. And to me, I mean, I don't know. Everybody can look at industry analysis differently, right? But when I'm, my purpose of industry analysis is to see what are the better investments inside of this industry and then, and then you try to kind of overlay that with, is this industry good to invest in as a whole? That's my, that's my goal with looking at industries. I'm sure people do it for different reasons too. But right. if that's the goal, then the purpose is to see how are they doing compared to each other and who's, who's the one that's going to do the best over the next 10, 15 years. Right. Yeah. I like that. It kind of sounds like to me, like you kind of build a, a shell, if you will, of this is what the industry kind of contains. And then you try to fill in the shell with information to tell you, okay, these are the companies that maybe I should look at. 
and these are the competitors and these are the moats of these competitors and how could they potentially overlap or even butt heads and compete against each other. Does that kind of sound like what you're trying to do? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's a really smart way to do it. And I think I've read that Michael Mobison kind of does a similar thing where he kind of builds a, a framework of this is what the financial situation. Yeah. A lot of people in the market like to refer to the TAM word, you know, yeah. total addressable market. It gets a little old because it gets overused. You know, Uber's Uber's TAM was five trillion or something crazy <laughs> like that it's when they first IPO'd. So like basically every dollar spent in the world, Uber was going after. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't exactly panned out, but <laughs> there could be some absurdity to that. But I think the framework, the way you do it, I think is probably a really smart way to do it. So let me ask you this question. Let's say that we wanted to investigate the semiconductor industry and you kind of build that framework. But if you don't understand like what semiconductors are and maybe how they function, how would you kind of, is that something you attack or is that like, okay, maybe I don't quite get this. I can put this in a too hard pile for now. Like how do you kind of think about that? You know, cause shoes are shoes. <laughs> right. There's not a lot of tech involved in the shoes. I don't think, but you know, when you think about semiconductors, there, there's a lot more moving parts, if you will. I feel like I will answer your question eventually, but I feel like you're <laughs> the perfect person to answer that question. Okay. Because I graduated electrical engineering, right. I did engineering for a few years in my career. Mm-hmm. You have a couple of semiconductor companies in your portfolio, but you mm-hmm. had no background in the industry. So, how did you get over the intimidation of something as complex as semiconductors in order to be? comfortable investing in them? Well, I did my usual hoard a whole bunch of information. I tried to read through and just try to learn it as best I could. I went to, I looked for people that were considered industry experts, if you will, and tried to read through the information that they presented. Some of it, I went to more of the semiconductor for dummies, you know, realm to just basically get a a grasp on what do they actually do? And then how do they make them? And then trying to figure out what are the different moving parts of how they're made. You know, there's the design then there's the actual physical making of them. And then there's the actual use of them. And so just trying to figure out how those different components. And then, you know, also I had you who has sort of worked in the industry. And Mm -hmm. so I could, you know, pick your brain about different things because you had, you know, not inside knowledge, but you had worked in the industry. So you understood you know, some of the technical questions that maybe I would ask about, you know, the differences in the sizes of the, you know, nanometers, you know, what's the difference between seven and five and, you know, understanding, you know, Gordon's, you know, law and, you know, some of those things that once I started to kind of get my head around those, then it was a lot easier to understand the different businesses. That's really how I did it. But it it took me, I mean, it wasn't something I did in a weekend. It took me months to kind of, you know, keep picking at it and just staying at it until I got up to a place I could understand. And I also spent a lot of time reading the financial reports, reading the 10Ks of Taiwan Semiconductor and Texas Instruments and Intel and AMD and NVIDIA and, you know, on and on and on. And that helped start to give me a framework. But I went to YouTube and looked for videos on how they're made. I looked at infographics, tried to create some of my own, just some of those things. And then I spent some time writing about it too, because I think that helps formulate. It helps you think better when you have to write, because when you write, you're trying to put down ideas and try to clarify them for the reader. And if you can do that well enough, that means you understand something. Yeah, totally. Did you take a similar approach with payments? 
Uh, everything, pretty much everything I've ever done. <laughs> okay. Uh, I did the same thing with payment. Tried to do the same thing with the electric industry, whether that's solar or whether that's batteries. Uh, did the same thing with um, with the cloud. Any of those kinds of things. That's what I've done. Did you notice a big difference in the way you had to investigate, let's say, payments versus semiconductors? They were a little different. The semiconductor for me was far more technical. And it was way more outside of my circle of competence because I just didn't understand what a wafer was and what a chip was. It just, I didn't get that. So I had to figure that out. With the payments part of it, it was more about the tech and how the business used the tech. But once the tech part of it was kind of uncovered, the basic gist of it is they're moving money around and that's not a whole lot different to banks. And so once I kind of understood that, then it was a lot easier. Like really I started with Visa and MasterCard. And once I figured out how Visa and MasterCard worked, it really gave me a good, really good sense of the whole value chain, if you will, of how payments work. And so once I understood the value chain and where Visa sits in that, then it was a lot easier to understand a company like Fiserv or FIS and Ajin or PayPal because of where they sit in the payment architecture or the flow, if you will. Once you understand that, then it becomes a whole lot easier to understand the whole industry. Value chain, that's super, super important because Mm -hmm. it can be so easy to get caught up in this company competes directly against that company. Mm -hmm. But there's companies up and down that chain, customers, vendors, suppliers that play a key role and also help you understand Because you could be the best, shiniest turd, but you're still a turd. And some (laughs) parts of value chains can be like that, Mm -hmm. where not a big part of the profits go to a small part of the chain and everybody else kind of has to feed off the scraps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In essence, that's what I was trying to do with the electrics, you know, with the the electrical industry. I'm just, I'm lumping a whole bunch of stuff into Utilities, that. Solar, yeah, yeah. Right. So when I couldn't find solar panel companies that I thought would be potentially a good investment, then I tried to start working back down the value chain to see if there was some other place in the chain, whether it was people that actually produce the silicon for the solar panels or the chips or the wiring that's used not only from the solar panels, but to get from the solar panels to the conducting stations or the conducting stations themselves or the utilities. There's just, there's a whole other chain of businesses that you can look at in along the way. Same applies with a semiconductor. If, If Intel isn't your thing, you can look at TSMC who produces a lot of chips. Or if that isn't your thing, you can look at, you know, design companies like Broadcom and NVIDIA. There's so many different kinds of parts of the value chain that you can look at. And I think that a lot of times can be better opportunities than the thing you first originally thought was going to be the thing. So how did you, since you're talking about semiconductors, how did you decide on Texas Instruments? That's an interesting question. I think probably because I was so wrong about Intel that it led me to look at the business model for Texas Instruments and decide that in large part because of the write-up that you did about the company, really kind of helped spur my curiosity to learn more about the business. And then once I started to learn more about the business, I realized that their value proposition and what they create is a lot stronger and maybe less volatile in the long run than 
an AMD, NVIDIA, Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm, I mean, any of those other companies, which are not denigrating those companies at all or saying they're bad investments, but they're far more volatile than Dave likes to deal with. So, you know, Texas Instruments to me seem like a safer bet. And I just felt like that their capital allocation, but just the business was stellar, but just the business model and what they do and how they do it, I just thought was sustainable for a lot longer than I probably originally thought. I feel like I already know the answer to this, but what metrics confirm that thesis for you with Texas Instruments? Oh boy. Well, of course, you got to look at the ROIC of the company. You have to look at the revenue growth and you have to look at the free cash flow growth. And I guess the last one is the share buybacks that they do. I think all four of those kind of general financial ideas kind of all correlate with how well they do what they do. They grow revenue. They're not super, you know, they're not going to grow at 30% a year. It's on a, the more mature side of the thing of the equation. But because they do it so profitably, they generate so much cash flow that they can use to reinvest in the business as well as buy back shares and pay a dividend. And they're very, very disciplined about their capital allocation. And if you read their 10K, they spend a lot of time talking about free cash flow and their capital allocation and how important it is. And they end every conference call with a little statement about how important shareholders are as well as free cash flow. So that it tells you, if nothing else, that this is something they feel is very important to them. And, you know, it shows me that they care about us, you and I, if we buy the company. So that was, yeah. that's kind of my thought. Yeah, they have a really great track record of doing that. So as you go through this, analyzing the industry and wrapping your head around how it works, what the businesses are, who the better performers are, what's next? Because you don't just learn about an industry and then drop it all if you do end up investing in it. Mm -hmm. I think this is timely because we had earnings last night Mm -hmm. and Texas Instruments, one of those that had a big stock move after earnings. And a lot of the semiconductor names. So how do you deal with continuing to hold something in an industry and continuing to analyze that industry? For me, it's maintaining my knowledge and continuing to try to learn more about what it is you're investing. I mean, we have to know what we own. And because I own Texas Instruments, when they have a quarterly call like they did a day or so ago, I listen to the call and I read through it and I think about what's going on with the company. And if it calls for it, I try to write something about it. And that all helps me maintain my knowledge of what's going on with that company and keeping me refreshed on that idea. It also keeps my eyes open for other opportunities in the industry because I've done enough work on Texas Instruments and Taiwan Semiconductor and Intel. I feel like I have a working knowledge of how the industry works. And so if something comes along that catches my eye, it's a lot easier to switch and learn more about, for example, Qualcomm or AMD, for example. The learning curve isn't as steep because I've already learned and have tried to maintain the knowledge of that industry going forward. And just try to keep my foot in in the door, if, if you will. What kind of things do you listen for in the earnings calls? I think I try to, I'll use Texas Instruments as an example. So one of the things that I know over the last you know, I've owned the company not quite a year, but I've listened to plus years of earnings calls for them and read four or five years of annual reports. And so because of that, I, I know what the company is trying to do and I know what their goals are and kind of their culture. And so 
one of the, I guess, the big overarching things is I try to keep in mind is what is the company trying to do and are they veering from that? And so just to kind of a case in point with Texture Instruments, they're spending a lot of money trying to build out, expand their capacity with building out a new factory. And it's costing them a lot of money. But they were upfront about that over a year ago, two years ago, that that was going to happen. This was coming. They were going to spend the money. And all these things were going to change. Revenue would potentially slow down. Margins would potentially contract and free cash flow would potentially contract, which is all logical when you think about it because they're, you know, like us, we, we all of a sudden we go out and buy a car that we can't quite afford. Then until we get a raise, then we have to kind of bite the bullet and accept that, you know, our money is going to contract a little bit. Well, that's what's happening with Texas Instruments. I know this because I, I know something about the business. I'm aware and they told us this was coming, but analysts, don't like it (laughs) and they're pushing back on it and the market is pushing back on it a little bit. But I know as an investor that coming on the other side of this is a lot of potential for a lot of revenue growth and a lot of expansion of margins and all those great things that Texas Instruments is known for. So I'm okay with that as an investor because I know I got to go through a little bit of short-term pain to get to the other side where the grass is greener, if you will. So when I'm listening to their call, I want to make sure they're staying on that path that they said they're going to stay on that path. And if they aren't, then that's something that's going to prick up my ears. Like I don't get too excited. Oh, the margin contracted by, you know, one basis point or, you know, a hundred basis points. Okay. (laughs) That doesn't get me excited. But if they're, if management is changing, you know, all of a sudden they're like, no, we're going to start drop this and we're going to become a pizza hut or something. Then it's like, uh, (laughs) you know, so I guess that's kind of what I try to listen to. What about you? For me, I just try to absorb all of it. So I have more positions than most people, I think. Right now, it's close to 30. So for me, it's more about being intentional about how am I going to spend my time. And I think at different times, different companies deserve deeper dives. And I think with Texas Instruments, it's a good example where you're seeing some softness in that industry. The sentiment's starting to turn. Analysts are getting impatient. If you don't know what's going on in that business, that's a good time to to do a deep dive and figure out what's going on and and is the thesis still the same. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I like that idea. I think it goes hand in hand with our conversation with Paul about thinking about capital allocation and how Mm -hmm. is management executing on that. Yep. Yep, I totally agree. All right, everyone. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, we will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time. Have a prosperous day.
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at eInvestingForBeginners.com.